0: And as we go on thinking of this, Andrew, he spent, of course, that one day with Jesus, spending the rest of that day with Jesus, probably along with Peter. Jesus identifies Peter for the first time here as Peter. And, of course, this is the first meeting. This is how they first met. That's kind of interesting, the first meeting. There are other meetings that they have, you can say, well, were they called to be as disciples or apostles at this time? No, they weren't. But they've met Him. And they won't forget that meeting, will they? This, this is the Messiah. So what did they do? Well, they went back to their business, you know, like people would do. They They went back into the fishing business. That's where they're from. It's what they do. And we go to Matthew 4 now and it's been a little bit of time jesus has been ministering without the 12 apostles and he, he's gathering up disciples all along people are starting to follow him just like people follow john the baptist some of those john the baptist followers now start following jesus but in matthew chapter 4 verse 18 says now As Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. So, he's been doing his ministry. Now he's gone on up to uh, to Galilee, sees two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter. Now, who's mentioned first there? Simon, Peter, and Andrew, his uh, brother, (laughs) casting a net into the sea, for they were... Fishermen, you got to catch that word. You might want to circle it if you like. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you what? Everybody knows this. Fishers of men. Listen, you're fishing for fish, and that's all well and fine, but you're going to be fishers of men. You're going to fish for men. And so immediately they left their nets and followed him, Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee and their father mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So you have two sets of brothers, don't you, that are going to follow. Well, you know, Matthew makes it pretty short here. Um, If we were to go to Luke 5, we get a little bit more information on that particular meeting. Jesus had already met these guys, Andrew and Peter. And now He goes to their business as they're fishing. Luke 5 is the parallel to Matthew that we just read in Matthew chapter 4. If you pick it up at verse... um, Well, let's read that story a little bit. Pick it up at verse 2... There's a crowd around Jesus, so he has a lot of people following, right? He saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. Now, Jesus had met Simon. He already knew him, right? He says, hey, can I get into your boat? He sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. And we talked about that, and that's highly unusual. You don't go out into the deep. You, you fish at night. And to go out into the daytime and out into the deep is just useless. You're not going to catch anything. And they're professional fishermen. Peter knows that. It's like Jesus says to do it. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing. Why would we catch anything now in the daytime out in the deep? But I'll do as you say. Right? And let down the nets. I'll do it. Obedience. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. They came, filled both of the boats, so that they began to sink. It's a lot of fish. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Why would he say that? Because he didn't catch any fish? No. He realizes... He's in the holiness. He's in the very presence of the holiness of God. Who else could have done... This is ridiculous. It's impossible to catch fish and this many fish at this time. That's why he was blown away by it. They'd already given up. They had their. They were working on their nets. They they were cleaning them and everything. And they went out and did it again. And that's a lot of work to get those boats together and then get the nets and then put them in. That's what happened. So Luke gives us a little more detail. Don't you love reading through the Gospels and harmonize them and you put it together. It's not that one is wrong and one is right. No, they just add to it and complement each other. And so here we get the rest of the story that Luke puts in. If you read Matthew, it's like, oh, Jesus walking along the shore and He says, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. You know, right? Boom, they go off. Uh, But here we see the more details. And I think it's remarkable. Wouldn't you go, if you just made a catch like that, if this is a miracle, and he sees the holiness of God, what would make you quit your, what you're doing when you're catching that many fish and follow Him? You are committed. This is the Messiah. I've met Him. He's a holy God. This is God. This, he's holy. I feel so sinful. And that's how people come to Christ. They recognize their sinfulness in the presence of a holy God. That's how you present the Gospel. God is holy. Mankind is not. Mankind is very sinful. Mankind is judged and is on his way to hell. But the good news is is that there's One who paid for your sins. Do you trust Him? Will you follow Him? And we see literally they get up and follow Him literally. That also shows spiritually what happened to them. Uh, So after he says, I'm a sinful man, for amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish, which they had taken. They never had anything like this. Nets breaking, boats sinking. And so you you see here, um, so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, so they're introduced there, who were partners with Simon. So you have... Andrew and Peter and James and John and and Zebedee, their father, they are in this business. Pretty good business. It would have been real good if they had Jesus hanging around there every day with them. They could have just fished, you know, go out there for a couple of minutes, bring them in, and boom, they're done for the day. That's not the way that it works, but um, Jesus said to Simon, do not fear. From now on, you will be catching men. I will make you fishers. You're going to be catching people. When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed Him. That's what it is to become a disciple of Christ. What is it? To leave everything. That means whatever stands in front of us in Christ, let it go. If there's something that takes you from following Christ, whether it even be your family, Jesus in Matthew 10 explained that. Even if a family member would keep you from Christ, It's, it's in a, and now that's not to say hey everybody's supposed to lose their jobs and start following Christ go up on a mountain and and uh, you know do an Eastern Hindu thing uh, but he's you know he's saying be ready to give up yourself everything and Peter did it Andrew did it Andrew's in the shadows here. Did you know in Luke five? Did you notice something different that was in Matthew four? Quite a few differences, but really they're they're not different. It's just different parts of the story. Luke doesn't even record Andrew in that little area that um, we just read. Did you notice that? No, Peter's mentioned, but Andrew's not. Huh? He's in the shadows. He's in the first group of the listing of the apostles, and and you guys, some of you remember that there are really about three groups of apostles. There are four in each. And every one one of them are listed maybe a little bit differently, but they all start with a leader in each one of those groups. The same one is mentioned in that order. Um, And Peter is always mentioned first, and that group is always mentioned first, and the second group, and then the third group. That third group, having you know the Judas Iscariot, for instance, and so there we have Andrew in the background. Um, in this first group, there are three that are highly involved, very intimate relationship. The, the the intimate four, you could say, but there are three that are even more intimate in in some senses. Uh, it's Peter, James, and John, because. They're found together in other places where it's just Peter, James, and John. Andrew's not mentioned. Transfiguration is one of those. Uh, What does Andrew do? Well, he brought Peter to Jesus. Isn't this a mark of a true disciple, a follower of Christ? They desire to show people Christ. Here's your good news. He's the one that can take your place. He is the sacrifice. He takes your place. Your sin deserves judgment. So, you know, He, t- he does that. In John 6, we have uh, another case where Andrew brings one to Jesus. And it's chapter 6, verse 5 through 9, I believe. Jesus, uh, you, got, you got a big crowd following This is John 6. This is the feeding of the 5,000 or if you count women and children, 15,000, 20,000. Who knows? We're talking about a big crowd. Uh, Maybe as many as at a ball game, you know, at a stadium. Therefore, Jesus lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Now this is Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew that he was intending to do. Philip answered him. Calculator, right? 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. Hey, 200 denarii. You know, a years wage or whatever. That couldn't even start to feed this crowd. Jesus, how are we going to do this? It's funny that Jesus would ask him. It's like he's saying, hey... Man, I don't know what we're going to do. Jesus knows exactly what a great setup. One of His disciples, Andrew Simon Peter's brother, (laughs) said to him, well, uh, for what it's worth, there's a lad here. He has five barley loaves. It's like five biscuits. And two fish. Oh, like, like this size. Sardines. But what are these for? so many people? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass. and You know the rest of the story, don't you? He multiplies. This is a miracle. I mean, this is supernatural. Peter and Andrew are not surprised anymore. I mean, Jesus has been doing this all along. and But here we go. What did He do? He brought this boy... To Jesus. And then he of course took those loaves and multiplied. Andrew said, Hey, hey, look at this. Look what he's got. Jesus does the rest of the story there. Go to John twelve verse twenty. Again, Andrew is gonna bring some people to Christ. They're Greek speaking Jews. They wanted to meet Jesus. So in John twelve, twenty. Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. By the way, this is at the time uh, that there is Jesus has entered Jerusalem for the last time. This is the um, the Passover week, so that's what's happening. And you have just thousands and thousands of people in town. These Greeks have heard about Jesus. This is the feast. It's a Passover feast. These then came to Philip. Notice Philip is kind of involved, and Philip says, Oh, well, he goes to, look who he goes to. Who was from Bethsaida of Galilee? Remember, they all knew each other? He's from the same town as Andrew, Peter, and James, and John. Philip knows these guys. And he began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip came and told Andrew. Because he knows he really has a way with people. And uh, anyway, Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. So Andrew and Philip together, Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It's It's that week. He's going to be crucified. He is the One. He is the God of glory. But He talks about His death there to these men, these Jews. And so there again, we have Andrew. By the way, I wonder why they wanted... You have Philip and you have Andrew. You have some Greek name there. And, and uh, maybe, hey, I can identify with this guy. He's a Jew, but he, you know, he's Greek-speaking too and has that kind of name. Huh? Anyway, it takes an Andrew to bring Peter to the Lord. It takes an Andrew to bring some of these other guys to the Lord. You guys know these kind of guys? the behind the scenes. Nobody knows what they do. What about Andrew? I said I was only going to spend a few minutes. Okay. I think he was a great witness for Christ. He sees somebody that needs to see Christ and he brings them. I think he was a very humble man. I don't think you ever see him um, saying, You know, I've had enough of it, Peter. You know, your name is always mentioned first. It's always Peter's brother. And we don't see that. I I think he was humbled by all that. He knew that a God can use him, even in a way where it doesn't seem like he's like Peter and James and John. So we move on to the next one James. James and John. What do they do? Well, they're fishermen too. They know Andrew and Peter. Just like them, they're brothers. They are in a fishing business. We look in Mark chapter 1, verse 20. So we've done Andrew now. Of course, these guys just—if if you go back, uh, Simon, Andrew, immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee, Zebedee, James and John's father. He's in the same business. That's James and John in the boat with the hired servants, and went away to follow him. So there's Mark showing James and John, and of course they're called at the same time as Andrew and Peter. Jesus knows exactly what He's doing as He pulls these fishermen out to not only follow Him, but to take the Gospel to the world. He knows exact, but the, Oh man, this is going to be a lot of work, isn't it? These fishermen? James, like Andrew, and Peter and John are in the first of the three groups. Peter, Andrew, James, John. Intimate three are Peter, James, and John. Where's Andrew? Probably bringing somebody to Christ. <laughs> he is. It's interesting. Uh, in 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 two of the list, his name comes right after Peter. Not not surprising. Some say that that's because he was a very strong leader himself. Even though it seems like he's fourth in this group. He's also mentioned as second, and it could indicate that he is the older, and could indicate that, you know, um, James. When you have James and John, now James would be probably older than John. Transfiguration, Garden of Gethsemane, the raising of one who had died. They were with Jesus. Peter, James, and John were. So we're looking at James. We'll be looking at John in a moment. Everybody knows that uh, Jesus called James and John the sons of thunder. I mean, these guys are not wimps. They're very zealous. They're not meek little lambs. Not at all. They're very zealous. They're very passionate. They're ambitious. They're fiery. Can the Lord use people like that? Yeah. He sure does. He needs those people. He needs a thunderous personality. A son of thunder. That's who James is. Look in Mark 3.17. By the way, when you see James in the Gospels, do you know you'll always see his brother mentioned with him? Mark 3.17. And James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. So there's where they got their name. Um, Whenever he selected these twelve here, he had given them this name, the sons of thunder. Sounds like a rock group, doesn't it? <laughs> well, these guys were passionate in what they did. They had zeal. The only thing is, they didn't really have a lot of compassion. That's usually what happens. You know, we can be given uh, a different uh, a personality that is that is good, but it becomes so dominant that it overrides all the other ones. And Jesus takes that one dominant piece of personality that we have and He molds it. He trains it into the way that can be useful for His kingdom, for His glory. That's what He's doing to us. I mean, even right now. He's been doing it, He still does it if you are His. So, a lot of zeal. And you'll, you'll remember that it was probably the time whenever maybe... Jesus was referring to whenever James and John called Jesus to bring down fire from heaven. And, you know, is a certain city of Samaria. Uh, Jews, Samaritans, they don't get along together at all. Matter of fact, they both hate each other. And Jesus didn't skirt out of the way which most Jews would do, they would not even go through Samaria. They would go on the other side. Well, Jesus is going to go right through Samaria. And I'm sure that some of the ones are following going, do you know where you're going? You know, this, this is the bad part of the country, Jesus. I mean, we're not welcomed here. Well... When you think of these guys, they must have raised all sorts of kind of problems, you think, uh, maybe in their other life, their past life. I don't know. Uh, Luke 9, 51 through 56. When the days were approaching for His ascension, Jesus, He was determined to go to Jerusalem. Of course, that's where He's going to head for... Crucifixion, but it's gonna go for He sent messengers on ahead of him. Guys, go ahead. They went, entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him, but they did not receive him. This little village didn't. Because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. They ate Jews, they ate people from Jerusalem or going to Jerusalem. When His disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, uh, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Just destroy them. What do you think, Jesus? You could do it. You want us to go ahead and do that? We'll, We'll say it for you. But He turned and rebuked them, and He said, You do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. It's not going to work there. It went on. Well, I think we get the idea here why they would be called sons of thunder, right? Uh, Is like, did they come up to Jesus and say, hey, hey, Lord, do we pray for these dear folks that they will be enlightened and follow you too? No. Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? This is definitely not a seeker-friendly mentality. And I don't know about that seeker-friendly type mentality either, but Lord, give us the power and we'll just incinerate this city. We'll blow it all away. Let's do it. Come on. They could literally turn that town into ashes. Jesus' power. They know His power. They've seen it. He could obliterate all the unsaved right there. can It's almost like Jesus, can't you be more like Andrew? <laughs> he didn't say that, but Andrew is always bringing people to Jesus. James is here saying, this is a quite a different guy, burn him up! Not exactly the missionary kind of spirit, is it? We want to go to anybody and everybody because the gospel has the power to change people's lives. Isn't it interesting that the Lord called a guy like this, James here, and of course John, to be an apostle with that kind of attitude? It's like, oh, you're out, you're fired, out of here. You know, I can't use a guy like you. Well. He has zeal. He has a boldness for God. He still had to learn about the love, the mercy, the compassion that Jesus has, the tenderness of God, right? We're all being trained. There There are James and Johns in the body of Christ. There's the Andrews. There's the Peters. They all have different kind of personalities, characteristics. They all have their faults, don't they? But in a short time, what Jesus does is incredible. Well, we know that James continued to be bold, he continued to be outspoken. That's his personality. It's not like you give up your personality, Jesus just makes it better. And he can, matter of fact, he transforms you, it just doesn't make you better but He transforms us. Now, He became the first of the apostles to be martyred. James was martyred. If you look at Acts 12.2, very early on in the church, Peter is dominating at this time, but the apostles are all doing their thing and Of course, here's an apostle, James, who we're talking about. Verse 1, now about that time, Herod the king... Remember all the Herods that we've talked about previously? Herod laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he had saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread, anyway, that was violence done to the church. Very early on, the persecution is happening. Jesus is not even here. He's already ascended and the apostles are being persecuted for what they taught, what they believed, and who is the first one beheaded, killed. It is James brother of John. And you would have thought, boy, sure could have used him for the rest of the time of the church. Well, see, God has his people, and he has them for a certain time. I also have to think of earlier there was a guy by the name of Stephen who had been martyred. And of course his attitude was incredible too. Well, the attitude here of James was tremendous because church tradition, don't have it in Scripture, but the story goes like James was taken in to be beheaded. There was a soldier in charge of the execution and he was so impressed by James and his compassion and his care and his love and his zeal that he had that he declared himself to be a Christian also, and he also became beheaded alongside of James. That's the tradition. Interesting story. Very well could have happened. Andrew, along the same lines, happened to him, and he was not worthy. He said to be crucified like Jesus on a cross but it was on like an X. And sometimes you'll see symbols of um, St. Andrew. Did did I say Andrew? I mentioned all these names. I'm running them together. But uh, that's St. Andrew's cross. And throughout church history, you'll see that. A lot of churches are named St. Andrew's, right? Or even St. Peter's or St. John's, St. James. You have a name of a city. Called Saint James. I don't know if that's after him. I would think probably is. Anyway, we know he was very ambitious. There was one thing that is really stands out as a negative, and really all the disciples were guilty of it. But there were two who stood out, maybe even more than Peter, was James and John. It's kind of bizarre in all the acts of the apostles, it is. It's is—it's—it's bizarre. Uh, they're fervent. They're passionate. They're they are zealous. They're insensitive. Very ambitious. They're driven. Driven to the highest places here these guys are. Do you remember they said to Jesus, uh, command that in your kingdom the two sons of mine, now this actually is their mother saying this, but they had gotten with their mother, and she says that they may sit one on your right and one on your left. Any idea where they might have gotten their attitude? Did it come from Mom? Uh-huh. Um, they wanted to take advantage of the position that they had. They are on the inside track, you know. And they got their mother involved and she's rather energetic. Would the Lord purposely call somebody who is so insensitive and harsh and zealous and ambitious into this ministry, so prideful? Why would Jesus ever pick these guys? Peter and Andrew, James and John. Hey, who's the greatest in the kingdom? Well, evidently they thought they were sit on the right and left of Jesus. The highest spots they could get. You know what? They were harnessed by Jesus, used mightily by God. Those attitudes you're not going to see after the Holy Spirit came into their lives and changed them. Sure, it probably raised up sometimes, but this is now a new nature of these guys. Mm -hmm. Summary of James, very zealous, very ambitious, but he was tenderized. A man who was appointed to die in the way that he did, he drank the cup. Jesus had said, They cannot, who are they? Do they think they can drink the cup that I did? That I am going to him? And they, well, he did. They all did, really. God tempers that zeal, that compassion. James went out in a blaze of glory, didn't he? That testimony is still read today one last one. John, he's not the least though, is he? Everybody knows so much about John. We know John wrote John. John wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. John wrote Revelation. That's a lot of the New Testament. That's a lot to write about. Very theologically sound. And of course, his gospel is about the deity of Christ. Of course, in the first, very first few verses, he shows right off that Jesus is the Word. The Word was God. Word is God. That's Jesus. And I, he's in the inner circle, obviously. Peter, Andrew, James, John. That first group. He's a brother of the one we just went through, James. And there are principles that John actually emphasizes throughout his gospel and, and other writings, two of them really stand out. Truth, love. Now, he would boldly stand for truth before. One thing that he needed to learn was love. He learned it from the master. And This is a balance that is always needed. We must be based on truth. Everything is truth. The Word of God is truth. This is where we find truth. It's the Word of God. This is it. And we must stand boldly for it. But when we take it to people, we take that truth in love for them. Not like a son of thunder... Calling down fire from heaven, but the way that Christ delivered it, in that compassion and in that uh, zeal that He had for them. And so it says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. Now, God equips everybody with gifts, and He equips the church with gifts, and pastor teachers and such. So that they would become mature, so that they would know Christ and so that they would be able to respond like Christ. And it says in verse twelve, Ephesians four twelve, for the equipping of the saints for the work. That's what this word of God is. It's that we be equipped. We're not only worshiping God today, but we're also being equipped. Because this is his word. Now, it's not my word. You know, as faulty as I may bring it, let it be powerful to each one of your souls that it would change us. Right? We need to be changed all the time. That we be equipped for the work of service. And there go diaconas to the building up of the body of Christ, so that we all be built up. We all need each other, don't we, to be built up? We can't be lone ranger Christians. It doesn't happen. It has never worked that way. It never will. So if you're thinking about, hey, that would be pretty cool, it would not... Can you imagine if that would have been it? Then that would have been it for the church. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith, and remember the very first scripture that we started this worship off with was that Jesus was praying for that they would be one. And we are one. Like it or not, we are one. We just need to maintain it. We already have unity. Unity is in Christ. We can't make unity. The unity is there. We maintain it, though. Attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man. We want to become mature to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. What's the standard? Christ. Oh, that's going to take a long time. Yeah, it is. You know, This sums up what's happening to us. He is molding us, making us like the apostles that we have just been looking at till we get to the fullness of Christ when's that going to happen Christ comes back as a result we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried by every wind of doctrine you know people floating about going over to this and going over to this I and mean, then they they know everything and nothing makes any sense scripturally they're just You know, you hear this and hear that and being tossed about by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love. Truthing in love. You can't have one without the other. We're to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the Head, even Christ and might as well get the rest of it, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by whatever joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part. Peter's part, Andrew's part, James' part, John's part, Philip, Nathaniel, all the way on down, all through church history, all the way up to today, and I could name all of you, right? We are in this together. We cause the growth, it, 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 the proper work of each end of art causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. But you can't do it without truth. If you have all love and say, "Oh, we're just a loving body," we don't want to preach things that can cause controversy or things that can offend people. We just need to love each other. Stay away from that kind of church. <laughs> Because the truth doesn't matter. The truth does matter. It's everything. But it is not everything without love. Truth and love, they go together like this. Just like the Word of God and the Spirit of God. Worship in spirit and truth. There's that truth again. The mighty working of the Spirit of God and the very Word of God. And it's knowing sound doctrine. It's an elusive balance sometimes because there are things that really offend us and they should sometimes. And we want to call out where there is error, but when we do it, we still have to realize this person has given me an opportunity, Lord has to go to and give them truth. How they respond, you don't know, but we don't get mad, right? And angry. We shouldn't be surprised. Jesus Christ, Christ likeness, that's what it's about. We're to be like Christ. There are people who are ignorant of God's word, truth is missing. They're very shallow in what they know. They're tolerant in sentimentality, but that's a there's a just a poor substitute for genuine love to you have the orthodox that have all their theology down have all their ducks in a row and they know doctrine but they're very unloving they're very self exalting it's about them they're left with truth of cold hard facts but people don't want that kind of truth brought to them in that way do they So it has to be so... It's very unattractive. We have to manifest both truth and love until we become mature believers. To the fullness of Christ, I think John became a human example of truth and love. And you go into the epistles and what do you see? Black and white. If you don't love your neighbor, you don't love God. You're not a believer. Just like that, is that right? Yep. This is my commandment that you love one another. Right? Love God, love your neighbor. If you don't, and love is act. It's act. It's not just saying, "Well, I love that person." I don't like all the other stuff that they did. I, I love them. They don't, there's nothing done with that. John had a remarkable experience and. It's found in Matthew 17. We don't have enough time, but it's the Mount of Transfiguration. He saw Jesus in his glory. Transcendent glory. It was a beautiful scene. Of course, Peter said, Hey, can we stay here? Let's pitch, let's do the tents right here. Let's do the. Now you still have to go down and show Christ. Matter of fact, he was right along with James. Who's the greatest? and the kingdom. Like I say, black and white writer. In the epistles, you see that throughout. If you don't confess your sins, you're not a believer. That's a mark of a Christian. They confess their sins. And it just goes on through that. He says, okay, here's. you want to know if you're a believer or not? You either are or you're not. I mean, like that. Now granted, there is... You have to use wisdom in that, but but John hit with truth. But he always hit it with love. And we finish this up as we look in John thirteen twenty three. Jesus at this time is doing something that a teacher like him shouldn't have ever been doing. That just didn't happen in that culture. Doesn't happen in our culture today. But He washed the disciples' feet the night before He was going to be crucified. And in verse 23, there was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of His disciples whom Jesus loved. John writes the Gospel of John. John doesn't really tell about himself, I'm John, I'm the one who wrote the book. John is very humbled. At this time, he does like to refer to him the best phrase that he could. The disciple whom Jesus loved. Well, Jesus loved all the disciples. And He loves each one as much as He possibly can. He loves them with infinite love, doesn't He? He loves us regardless of what we do sometimes. He loves us just as much at that time as He does when we bring glory to Him. His love never changes. So He loved all the disciples, but John wanted to be known as the disciple whom Jesus loved. That meant so much to Him. This is the Son of Thunder, folks. This is James and John. And look at we have a love here. Now he's not one of those effeminate kind, just sitting around meditating all day while he's leaning up against the bosom of Jesus. But to him, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And if you looked in John nineteen twenty six you will see that again. If you look in John chapter twenty, verse two, you will see it again. Again in John twenty one verse um, Verse 20, 21, and then um, we see who, who He is through at the end of the Gospel here. This is not a title that He used boastfully, but He was astounded by the fact that Jesus loved Him at being as bold and brash as He actually was. This strong fisherman the one whom Jesus loved you know what the lord loved him who wanted to destroy the samaritans but jesus is shaping him all along you know where john wound up at he wound up pastoring a church called ephesus There were some prominent people who were pastors at Ephesus. That was quite a strong church. Ephesus, you'll see in the book of Revelation. John addressed them as a uh, but he he uh, Ephesus. Matter of fact, Paul wrote Ephesians, which we read earlier, and he balanced truth and love. Do you think John got it? I think so. Yeah, he did. He took care of Mary, the mother of Jesus took care of her, Jesus said, because He knew how compassionate He now was. He didn't ask anybody else. It was John. We finish this up with the Lord needs people of courage, of great ambition, of great drive, of great passion, great zeal, great boldness, to be able to even stand behind the scenes. Every one of them had potential Jesus knew exactly what the potential was. And He takes your strengths, which sometimes are way too strong. He starts molding them. And He molds them till we are shaped like Christ. To be like Christ. He stood for truth. And we certainly see that in His writings. Thank the Lord for the Gospel of John. Thank thank the Lord for the epistles, revelation, which tells us what is to come. We see different personalities, and God uses the negatives and He uses the positives to be people of God. What He wants from us are to be broken clay pots that He's putting back together to be vessels, low, everyday, ordinary vessels who have been humbled and broken because those are the people that God uses. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word and Your truth. May we learn a little bit further Your purpose, Your plan, and what You're doing, what You've been doing to the church, and what You continue to do, and all the way to each individual here. Lord, may Your work be for Your glory as we try to preach the gospel of grace. We want people to understand this is how you know God. It's by the grace of God. Help us to walk out of these doors today as we continue to fellowship and as we do go that we take your truth and mix it in with love so that we can bring glory to you and further the kingdom. Thank You, Lord, also for these special visitors that we've had today. It has been just joyous. Thank You for Your mercy and grace for sending them to us because we have been uplifted and encouraged. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. This is the time that we have communion with the Lord as we take it together. And we see that as we're brothers and sisters in Christ, we take this communion... Realizing that we are in a body as one. And that's a a part of the meaning of communion. You could go on and give messages and messages after that, but of course we based our message off of what we looked at today and how the Lord is making us like Christ. One day we'll be there in glory, perfect, like Christ. Not being Him, but like Christ. That is unfathomable, isn't it? It's what He's doing. And so, as you think about that this morning, think about it before that we started. Uh, go to Him in prayer. And of course, this is open to anybody who is a Christian, who, who have trusted in Christ. Uh, we part, they all partake together. And if there's some sin that you need to be taken care of, you do it right now, and then you take your communion. And so, therefore, we prepare our hearts. Bob, could you lead us
1: Gracious Heavenly Father, we now have communion with you as we remember our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and His death, as he had uh, directed his apostles long ago, and as the church has continued in this remembrance, that we would uh, be in direct communion with the living Christ, who had resurrected after his death, and now intercedes for his people, this church. And, uh, so Lord, may we, uh, may we be very grateful that you have called us to this Lord's Supper to be in uh, close communion with you, and may we be mindful of the Spirit's work in our lives convict, and to uh, convert, and to renew, and to teach, to edify, and to uh, challenge us in our walk with the Lord. We remember, we remember our Christ, the the Lord of truth and of love. In Jesus' name we pray.
0: And we invite you to uh,
1: partake.